Over the past 10 plus years, artificial intelligence has experienced breakthrough after breakthrough after breakthrough. In computer vision, in speech recognition, in machine translation, in robotics, in medicine, in biology, and the list goes on and on and on. Underneath all of these breakthroughs has been one single subfield of artificial intelligence, deep learning. Today's guest pioneered many of the early deep learning breakthroughs and continues to lead the charge today. For his work, today's guest won the Turing Award, the equivalent of the Nobel Prize, but for computer science. Today's guest has their work cited over half a million times. That means there are over half a million and counting other research papers out there that build on top of his work. In the process, today's guest has made Montreal into one of the world's foremost destinations for aspiring AI scientists and entrepreneurs. Today's guest is also one of the most socially conscientious scientists I know. I am, of course, talking about no one less than Yoshua Benjo. I'm extremely privileged and excited to have you on the show today, Yoshua. But before we dive in, I want to thank our podcast sponsors, Index Ventures and Weights and Biases. Index Ventures is a venture capital firm that invests in exceptional entrepreneurs across all stages, from seed to IPO. With offices in San Francisco, New York, and London, the firm backs founders across a variety of verticals, including artificial intelligence, SaaS, fintech, security, gaming, and consumer. On a personal note, Index is an investor in Covariant, and I couldn't recommend them any higher. Weights and Biases is an ML ops platform that helps you train better models faster with experiment tracking, model and dataset versioning, and model management. They are used by OpenAI, NVIDIA, and almost every lab releasing a large model. In fact, many, if not all, of my students at Berkeley and colleagues at Covariant are big users of Weights and Biases. Yosha, so happy to have you here with us. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's so nice to have you on, Yoshua. And of course, we, we've, we've met many times in the past, especially thanks to the CIFAR Learning in Machines and Brains workshops that you've organized for many, many years with many great discussions. Maybe as a, a first thing I'm really curious about is you did a lot of work on language models before they became cool. You're working on recurrent neural nets and so forth. 10, 20 years ago, what was your motivation at the uh, time? Sorry, it's more like 30. Yeah, what was your motivation at the time to, to push this? Well, I wish nobody else was, was thinking of language that way. Well, in my PhD, so I got my PhD in 1991, I was interested in recurrent nets and, and convolutional nets and probabilistic modeling of sequences because my supervisor was into speech recognition. And I proposed methods that were pretty close to the ones that 20 years later ended up in, you know, Google's and IBM's and Microsoft speech recognition systems that, that came out around 2010, 2012. And language, I really got into at the end of the 20th century. And it's really building on the ideas of Jeff Hinton with distributed representations. 
So I had this intuition that using what we now call word embeddings rather than purely symbolic representations based on counting engrams, that was the state of the art then, statistical methods, you could have a sharing of statistical strength because the same word can occur in many different contexts and many different engrams that would potentially defeat the curse of dimensionality that hits engrams. And actually, I started writing about this idea even before working on language with my brother, Sammy, in 1999, 2000 or something, is a sort of neural nets to learn complicated, high-dimensional discrete distributions with many, many variables. How could you possibly do that, right? And using representations, of course, of these symbols. And Jeff had been writing about these things for at least 10 years. Right? And, and I, but then around 2000, I started applying this to modeling actual like text. And this is how the neural language model, as we called it, emerged. I, at the time, I didn't think it was that revolutionary. It seemed like an obvious thing to do. And it didn't pick up right away. It took like a decade, really, for people in NLP to start really slowly picking it up. And yeah. But it's, it's a very powerful concept that I think not everyone who applies it in modern NLP understands, but it's really important too. It's interesting because, at least for me personally, when I first saw neural nets being applied very successfully, for example, in computer vision and speech recognition, I, I personally felt that it would need to be very different to also apply it to, to language. That was just my wrong, for that matter, reaction at the time, because it felt to me that vision and speech are signals, real numbers, neural nets process real numbers, but language seems to have these discrete concepts oh, but you have that discrete, seems so fundamentally different. You have discrete concepts in speech too. You have phonemes. And in fact, one of the questions I worked on during my PhD and people had been, had been thinking about is not just the relation between the low-level signal and individual categories that are phonemes, but also the high-level part. So how, what's the joint distribution of the level of phonemes conditioned on, on the signal? And up to now, I'm still like working on these kinds of questions, thinking about how we can... Now I'm thinking about how you can do this in an unsupervised way, that, that is, discover the right categorical representations that form complicated interactions at, at the abstract level, given that we only observe low-level signals. Right? Now, when you said earlier that you, you were investigating distributed representations, which is kind of the opposite of discrete <laughs> representations in, in some sense, or can be, it, and you talk about the word embeddings and so forth, do, do you see language as effectively under the hood also being a continuous medium rather than discrete? Well, it's both. So I have this theory about qualia. I don't know if this is a concept you're familiar with. Uh, yes. This is a subjective experience that you have that is difficult to, that is ineffable, that is difficult to translate in words. So when you, you see something and then you, you talk about it, you're conscious of it, there's something in your subjective experience of, of what you're experiencing that, that is very difficult to express, but you feel it and it's important. Well, it's the word embeddings. 
Hmm. So the, the theory I have is that, and which is consistent at least with what we know from neuroscience, is that when something arises to consciousness, it's your, your brain, your cortex, dynamical system converging to some attractors. And by definition, attractors are mutually exclusive, which means they have a discrete nature. It's either dog or cat. You can't have both at the same time. The NECA cube, you see it one way or the other way. You can slip from one to the other, but it's a discrete choice. But of course, an attractor is just a particular pattern of activation of the neurons in your brain. It's just one towards which your dynamics is going. Like you've decided somehow something in your mind has, or your, in your brain has decided that it's going to be dog. And so the, the dog attractor is also a very high dimensional pattern of activation of neurons in your brain, as well as being an attractor that competes with the other attractors. And actually it's not dog. It's going to be more like a sentence, like there's a red dog walking on the street. Right. Like our thoughts are not like single words. They're usually more like a configuration of concepts. But the idea is it, it seems to plausible that in our brain, we have sort of a dual representation. There's like a, some discreteness that's going on. We're, we're like, we have words. We, we take discrete decisions. You know, as a, as a, you know, roboticist, you know that. Mm-hmm. You have to decide, like the, the robot goes to the left or goes to the right. You know, these are, these are like hard decisions sometimes that you have to take. But, but behind these hard decisions, there's a rich distributed representation that allows to associ- associate these discrete entities to other discrete entities that have some similarity, right? It's a similarity space. That's what mm-hmm. super- distributed representations really are. And it's a rich one so that everything is connected to everything in that representation space. Whereas symbols are kind of stupid. Like there's nothing that says that dog and cat have something in common just by the symbol. So now you've not been afraid to talk about, I would say topics most researchers shy away from, like what does it mean to be, you know, a conscious part versus unconscious part of, of what our brain is doing. And, and I want to really dive into that because we've also written a, a beautiful recent piece on inductive biases for deep learning of, for deep learning of high level cognition. But before, before we get into consciousness and, and higher level cognition, I'm curious, how, how, how do you see the evolution that we have seen play out over, from your perspective, the last, let's say, five-ish years where language models have gone from in some sense, it, something most people don't didn't even pay attention to in the early days that you were working on it to becoming the center of attention of pretty much everything. And that's happening in AI. The underlying architectures have changed a little bit from RNNs to transformers, using attention mechanisms, which, by the way, you also pioneered in machine translation and, and speech recognition and so forth. So I'm kind of curious from your perspective, how do you see that evolution and where do you see it go? And does it go to just larger, larger? And is that all we need to do? I'm going to start with an anecdote. When, when I did the neural language models in 2000, I, I, I didn't have the compute to do it. And these were very, very small models by today's standards. I had to like ask someone who had like a big machine with 64 nodes and something that, you know, I didn't have on my desk basically in my lab. Of course, by today's standards, these machines are really, really not, not that fast. But 
but it was a lot of engineering actually to get it off the ground. And it didn't work that great. Like it was epsilon better than, than the, than, than the n-grams, the standard statistical methods of the day. But of course, as people like got more compute and, and, and more data, like our, the corpus, I was, the first corpus I worked on was like the brown corpus, which is really small. Then we, we went to Wikipedia and, and anyway, just got bigger and bigger. <laughs> I think that there was, there's a big shift with attention that really changed the game. But, but a large part of it, as you're implying in your question, is just we train on larger data sets and we have these bigger models and it, it makes a huge difference. And this is, I think, one of the most important discoveries of recent years. I don't think this is nearly sufficient. So scaling is, I would put it as a, it's a necessary but not sufficient condition to approach human intelligence. It tells me a lot about what we could do with large neural nets, you know, and, and, and it helps to anchor their strengths and their weaknesses with, and, and how, you know, with how we can complement that, that technology and, and, and underlying ideas to bridge the gap to human intelligence. So yeah, I think, I think there are some qualitative things that are missing. But I'm, I'm, I'm so, you know, it's exciting and, and I'm, I'm glad, but I, I'm not in the camp of those who think, okay, it's just, you know, more engineering, more scaling, more data, not at all. You're saying not just, but what if you think about what if people do just scale? Do, do you, sounds like you think there's going to be a limit to what it'll give us, but how far away is that limit? You think, do you think it's possible that we still have many years ahead of surprising new capabilities by just scaling? To some extent. So we've, as far as I know from talking to people who are building these nets, and I can't do it in my lab, we've essentially reached the amount of available data that's published on the internet in terms of text and probably images. I don't know about the image side, but on the text side, that's what I've been told. Mm -hmm. So. Yeah, we can probably gain a bit by having even bigger neural nets, but at some point we need to worry about simple complexity. Like the amount of data that these models need is many orders of magnitude, at least three orders of magnitude above what, say, a five-year-old sees in their life with, mm -hmm. with comparable competence or maybe an eight-year-old. I don't know where you want to put the bar, but, but even, even a five-year-old would reason better than current language models, state-of-the-art language models. They would know less, uh -huh. but with the things they know, they would reason out of distribution in ways that our current models do. In particular, they could reason causally. Now, it's interesting. I think the way you pose it is essentially there is maybe larger models have been very impressive. This is my interpretation. They've been very impressive, but the final result of what they do is building upon so much data that actually it, there is a better way. I mean, there's a more powerful way to get to those capabilities, which humans showcase, every, pretty much every human showcases by age three or five, such capabilities with far less data ever needed to, to get there. Exactly. And so maybe it's almost like a parallel quest. It's like build the most capable system today. Maybe for now, try to scale a bit more, but long-term try to build something more human-like, human-level might yeah. require something different than yeah. just pushing the scale. So I, I have a thought about how we can escape the simple complexity issue 
with current approaches. I mean, I have lots of thoughts, mostly what I'm thinking about, but I'm going to give you one aspect of it. Currently, the, the complexity of what a large language model can represent is limited by the amount of data that we have to train it and we've reached the limit. But I think that there's, there's a, like we're leaving a lot of money in the table in the following sense. I think the knowledge that we would like a, a you know, large language model to have could be represented much more compactly and that we might still need a very large model for doing inference over that model. So this approach, like, like think of like model-based RL. So what does it change? Well, if there is a cheaper representation of the same knowledge that it's basically using, then we need less data to learn it. And of course, we'll, you know, we'll need inductive biases to, to be able to do, to do that. But, but the point is I'm, you know, I have the intuition one way out of this simple complexity issue besides going to richer inductive biases is to separate the model part, which is how the world works from the inference part, which is able to answer any question that we are typically interested in about that, that knowledge. And you know, the reason I'm saying these things is also very much inspired by what we know about human admission that I've been studying in the last few years. The most kind of common thing today to get close to what you're saying would be maybe add retrieval to, to your language model, right? Allow it to retrieve the relevant text and reason over that relevant text to get to an answer. But the essay that you wrote and I was reading earlier this week on inductive biases for deep learning for higher level cognition has a, a much more involved like architecture that could, I think, go a lot further. You want to say a little bit about how, how you see, how, how, how do we get to the higher level cognition? Yeah. So evolution seems to have made choices for how our brain and, and our mind work with the result being these inductive biases that are associated with higher level cognition that for the most part, we don't yet take advantage of in machine learning. The, the one exception is attention. Although the way we use attention right now is quite different from what we know about attention in, in the brain, but we can see how powerful attention has been. So imagine we had like 10 X that sort of strength of inductive biases. So what do we know? There is a dominant theory of how conscious processing works in the brain, which is called the global workspace theory that was introduced by, and by Bernie Bars and in the eighties and nineties and, and of course, and refined by many others, including people like Stan DeHen, a neuroscientist who, who, you know, gave in a sort of a neuroscience kind of anchor and, and data. And it, it centers around this notion that we have a bottleneck in our brain for the information that is selected to become conscious and broadcast to the whole brain and, and available for speaking out what you're thinking. So it's the content of what you're thinking about. It's also called working memory. So, you know, the five or six or seven items that you can hold in your mind at any moment, that's it. That's the bottleneck. And it's kind of weird. Like why would we have such a small number of bits that we can hold when our brain is so much bigger, we have like 80 billion 
neurons and all their connections, right? So it must be because it has a, an evolutionary advantage and it must be a learning advantage, I think, because it's, it's a constraint, right? And we know in machine learning constraints, like, you know, regularizers, things like that, they usually represent a strong inductive bias. Okay, so why could that be useful in terms of learning? And the theory I have, which is developed in this paper and others, is that it forces us to represent the joint distribution among the high-level variables that we are manipulating at that conscious level to be formed of, to have a very sparse dependency graph where concepts can only enter in relationship with others through dependencies that involve just maybe two, three, four, five things at most. And our memory is also structured around these little chunks, dependencies, like a sentence. It's also reflected in language, these, 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 these inductive biases. So, so in other words, is this sparsity of dependencies that, and, and by the way, we, we also know that there's a sparsity of dependencies. This is something you can see in language. Like think about a parse of a sentence, like a semantic parse or a dependency parse. It, it, it basically relates just a few things together at a time. Of course, you can have many of these dependencies, but the units are involving just a few concepts. Or think about like mathematical formula. How many variables are there? Mm -hmm. Two, three, four, ten? That's, it's, it's, it's like we think this way. Right. So that's like inductive bias number one, but we're not exploiting yet. A related one, which you can see also in language, is that the, the types of these dependencies are, I mean, these dependencies are reused over and over. Like, for example, you have notions of types. So you have different categories like, dogs and cats. And lots of things that are true about cats are true for all cats or, you know, lots of cats, right? And I can have many cats in the picture and the same things I know about cats will apply to all of them, right? So this is, from a machine learning point of view, you have like, again, sort of sharing of statistical strengths. You have this reuse of components. And so that reusability is, is, is another inductive bias. Let me tell you about another one, which is maybe of interest to you because it's, I think, connected to reinforcement learning and robotics. And it's about the action side of our thinking. So if you try to inspect what is going on in your mind while you are planning to do something, you like look at your own thoughts. By the way, this is called metacognition observing your own thoughts. You, you also have this kind of sparsity. How big is a plan? Well, you know, maybe you can like click and, and, and zoom on some things, but, but it just has a few steps. So it has the same kind of organization of a few things at a time that are connected. And then, right. And if you ask like, why did somebody do something or what did somebody do? Like what happened that changed from this scene to this other scene? What explained the new thing that I'm seeing right now outside? Usually we can come up with a single sentence that explains it, or at least we're looking for one. Doesn't always work. So what this says is that change in the world, we attribute to a single agent doing a single thing. So this 
this graph of dependencies is also a graph that tells us about how things change in the world, which has to do with causality. And the, the inductive bias is we're expecting that most of the things that change are due initially to like one person, one agent, maybe it's an animal, maybe it's some imagined character that change one element of this graph that modified one variable, opened the door, and now it's kind of cold in the house, right? It can change many things like, you know, there's maybe domino effects, but the initial cause, the attributes we try to attribute to like a very few variables being involved, which we can essentially put in a sentence. Oh, that's the explanation. So it tells something about how we organize our plans, also how we attribute causes, counterfactuals, you know, why people are doing things, intentions, goals, that again, I don't think we're really taking advantage of in in RL and, and, and robotics, for example. Very interesting that you, how you describe essentially the sparse connectivity and the, some sense, small information amount bottlenecks yes. as inductive biases that allow for more capable systems. <laughs> the bottleneck makes them more capable. Do, well, do you well, think? Yeah, I wouldn't say this way. It it makes some computations easier, right? So we know that there's a curse of dimensionality. If you try to learn the joint distribution between n variables, and it goes like the the number of the amount of data you might need, and the amount of compute that you might need is exponential in n. That's a curse of dimensionality either in its computation form or in its statistical form. And this bottleneck breaks it. But of course, it's not necessarily, like, it's not true that this inductive bias works for everything. And that's why there's a separation between the low level and the high level. Right? So at the high level, we have these variables that satisfy these sparsity and bottleneck constraints. And, but not everything can be expressed in words. We know that. Like pixels don't satisfy these constraints. You cannot predict one pixel given just two or three or four others. Uh, you cannot tell a story about pixels, except if you bring it up to the high level where we have stories. It does make me wonder, actually, not so much AI related per se, but if, if indeed humans are set up to have these inductive biases to assume sparse essentially sparse connections triggering potentially domino effects and so forth, but that the core of everything is, is sparse interaction, which I guess Newtonian physics is, is indeed like that. So there's a lot of connection there. But if there are other things in the world that are maybe not so sparse in interaction, that humans have a much harder time correctly evaluating what's happening, correctly understanding what's yeah, happening. I'm sure there is. We just don't know. <laughs> the things that humans are good at tend to be things where we can come up with a, like a knowledge representation that satisfies everything that we can put in language satisfies this constraint. And the, so uh, there, there are like plenty of counterexamples in which deep learning is very good. Like playing Go, for example. It, like, the rules of the game are simple enough. But the inference needed to choose to play well is not easily decomposable into little pieces of knowledge and, you know, just requiring a few pieces at a time to be able to do something good. That's why there's also a shift from like classical program. Programming is like this too. Yeah, we write these little functions. We have this language where each line has a few symbols. 
few function calls. But not everything fits like this. And, and that's where deep learning in its current form is, is beating traditional programming and is, is beating the classical AI ways of doing playing chess or Go. Because we are able to learn these complicated objects, distributions that cannot be reduced to language-like things. So I'm not saying we need to drop that. This is extremely powerful. That's what our current large language models do. That's what our current vision systems do. But we're like missing this other part, which is the high-level cognition. There's a couple of things that stand out to me here that maybe I want to dig a little deeper on. One is the conscious versus unconscious part of what we do and curious about the kind of parts in, in AI that we can have to that. But then... Another thing that you've, you've come back uh, several times to this notion that things we can capture in one sentence, th those things are kind of the nugget of our reasoning and understanding of how the world works, right? Yeah. Well, it's, it's the conscious understanding. We can have like intuitive physics, for example, may not fit into this. I see. And, and, and the question I had around that is essentially, what, what's your thoughts on animals who seem pretty smart, but don't don't have language, or it seems like they don't have language at least. Yeah. I mean, is it yeah, necessary? These, these, are, these, these, these are good questions. I don't think anybody really has an answer that they could state with confidence and not boast. I have cats and, and they seem to reason to find solutions to problems, even in like a setting where they have zero experience. So they, they seem to put together pieces of knowledge in order to find solutions to problems, but they don't have language. And of course, they're, in many ways, they're stupid as well. Right. So my, my guess is that there, many mammals have a lot of the same machinery, but we've developed it a lot more. And one hypothesis, for example, that I heard philosopher Dan Dennett talk about, which makes sense, is the evolution, the, the expansion of our linguistic capabilities in, in, our, in, in the human line, we don't know where exactly, has given us some extra reasoning power. And, but like, for example, the working memory bottleneck, this is something that most mammals share. And by the way, it's interesting that other, many other animals have a larger working memory bottleneck than we do. Hmm. Really? Yeah. How, like how do people monkeys? know that? Oh, they can, they can test that. Like memory is, is just a memory game, right? So, you, you know, you know, they can train monkeys to play games. They get, they give them rewards. And so they can play memory games. You know, there are all kinds of memory games. And basically there, there's a point at which you start not being able to do well, which is your capacity for short term, very, very short term memorization of arbitrary things. Mm -hmm. Squirrels have a probably bigger working memory than we do. The thing you said earlier, really, I find it intriguing. Am I interpreting it correctly that that, that statement from the philosopher came down to we, we in the human kind of lineage already had some way of reasoning. Then we developed speech slash language. Evolutionary pressure became tighter or harder on having the ability to do speech and language because otherwise you can't you know, function as well in a society where everybody else can speak and understand yeah. language. Cooperate. We, we have very strong cooperation exactly. skills. Right? And in the process, it selected for 
brains that are also better at reasoning. Yeah. Yeah. I like math is like a side effect of evolution. It was not something that we evolved for. Yeah, I can see that. Now, going back to the conscious versus unconscious, like, I guess maybe we can start with something very simple. What, what do yeah. humans do conscious versus unconscious? Where, where, where's the line drawn right, right. between those things? So, so it's interesting that the, there's now a lot of work that, well, at least claims to identify that line that you're talking about. So we can observe with various instruments, things going on in your, in your brain and, and kind of be able to say, ah, this information has reached the conscious level. And we know because we can ask somebody or a, a monkey, we don't need to ask, we like ask them to do a task that reveals that they know something. And we can play with the strength of the signal so that if it's weak, if it's too weak, we can see that the information is there in their, for example, their visual cortex, but it didn't win the competition. That's the, the way to think about it in the global workspace theory. They didn't, that information didn't pay. I mean, there was not enough attention paid to that. And so it didn't come within the working memory that's broadcast to the whole brain and influences our decisions and actions and so on. So there are correlates of that line between unconscious and conscious that can be measured. And that's how we can see, for example, that you become oh, not aware, but the, your brain kind of knows an information for some time, for a few hundred milliseconds. And, and then something happened called the conscious ignition, where it's like that information suddenly, you know, lots of things light up in, in, in cortex and many parts of your brain, say, besides the visual cortex, suddenly know that information and then you can act on it. You can associate it, associate it with other things. You can, you know, talk about it if you're a human. And, and the behavior in your brain between those two phases is very clear and distinct. Very clear and distinct in that people measure electromagnetic activities in the brain and see a different yeah. pattern? Yes, yes. Now, as you mentioned earlier, the, the way attention works in the brain is supposedly very different from the way it works in our current attention architectures. Yeah. Can, can you elaborate on that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So there are many aspects. So first of all, the brain only has one conscious attention kind of light beam. We choose one thing at a time. And, and that thing, as I said, is like a sentence sort of chunk that have multiple items in it. In a transformer, it's like we are doing all of this computation with attention simultaneously over like old layers, all the units in the, in the same layer. So it's like we've, we found that tool and then we, we, we replicated it in, in many parts of the network. And maybe there are also things like this going on at the unconscious level. And so there may, we know that there's inhibitory processes going on in the brain that, that may play a similar role, but there is this one special attention, which is the attention that gives rise to what's called awareness, the thing that you can report verbally and it's correlated. It's not exactly the same, but, but it's essentially, yeah, one leads to the other essentially. Now this, this conscious attention is is discrete. Like you, it's like, you know, the neck cube example I was giving before. You either see the neck cube one way or the other way. You either have dog or cat, or maybe you have a sentence with both, but you know, there's a competition. It's this sentence, not this other sentence. You don't think two sentences at the same time 
mixed with some soft weights, which is the current way we do attention. In 2014, when we introduced the modern form of attention that is in Transformers these days, we were quite aware that, well, human attention is more like this hard, probably stochastic phenomenon where you choose one thing or the other, like discrete actions in RL. But we chose to do this soft attention because, hey, we can do background. It's much more convenient, right? It's just we didn't have the algorithms to conveniently train a system with stochastic hard attention. Actually, in like our second paper on attention, we did a comparison between soft attention and stochastic hard attention where the, the policy for choosing is just reinforced, like a very simple like gradient estimator. And I was convinced that the soft attention would be way, way better than, than reinforced. It didn't turn out that way. It was the same. So my interpretation of this is that there is a clear advantage if you can, you know, compute gradients the way we do it in deep learning these days. But there's probably an advantage from the stochastic heart attention that has balanced this out in, in that older experiment from 2015. And, and I'm now, you know, kind of thinking we can design much better algorithms for learning to attend in a way that's stochastic hard decisions, just like with conscious attention. When I think about hard attention, you lose a lot. And so it's interesting to hear you say that you think you might be able to learn equally fast because once you apply a hard attention, you essentially discarded so much information that you could have passed on. And yeah, there's no yeah. backpropagation for that anymore. It, it's it, it, it's yeah. gone from this information flow. Yet somehow, it just seems like fundamentally it is less efficient to learn that way. But uh, you think it doesn't well, have to okay, be. So you have to remember it's an inductive bias. So inductive biases, like, you know, regularizers in machinery, they make your life harder. Like, you know, it, it, in a sense that they, they restrict your capacity. So we had a paper, I think at Eurex 2021, where we took a, like to transformer like architecture and we replaced the communication between layers that used to be soft attention by something that involved discretization. And we use some tricks to backprop through the discretization, which I don't particularly like, but she, th these, these tricks have been very popular. I had another paper about these tricks in 2013, I think. Anyways, but the interesting thing is that by forcing to discard information to go from a, a continuous, so basically we had an like in, there's a paper called VQVAE, which came before ours that had a similar thing where you, you have a communication between two parts of the network and you create a discrete bottleneck. So you've got a vector in, you, 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 you decide of a symbol that has its own embedding and you take the nearest neighbor, you send the, the discrete ID of that symbol to the other guy and the other guy then retranslates back into a vector. And then, you know, it's all continuous after that. Right. So we, we just made this discretization bottleneck of communication between different parts and it got better out of this regionalization in, in our experiments. And you know, why would it help, right? Because you're discarding information. And the theory I have is, it, you know, why would symbols help when you could just do continuous vectors? 
And the, 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 the thought I had at the time, which I still think makes a lot of sense, is you create a plug-and-play scenario. So if I describe something with a sentence, and I instead of having like a very detailed description of the image of a dog, I just have the word dog. It's applicable to all of the images of a dog. And maybe I can reason at that level and discard all those details. Also, if you think about different parts of your brain communicating, so let's say fire. Well, you could hear fire. You could see fire. You could smell fire. You, you want the different parts of your brain to be able to like exchange information in a way that they can quickly learn that common language. By the way, that idea of a common language different parts between different parts of the brain is an idea from Bernie Bars again from the late 80s. And so you, you now have this very constrained communication form that, so think about how easy it is for us to learn a different language, right? It's easy because the words have a restricted capacity, each word. And, and so you can, you know, you can get, you don't need to know about the details of how the fire arose. It's fire. And, and you can mm -hmm. just plug that into everything you know about fires. So you can see that it's an inductive bias that allows to separate pieces of knowledge, like the details about how the fire looks like from, well, what you need to do when there's a fire, for example. If you had a rich continuous representation, then what happens is that all of those details want to sneak in. And then it's, it gets harder to generalize to a different kind of fire that maybe comes from a different sensory modality. This makes me think we should do more work on multimodal learning, everything you described there, collecting multimodal data sets and, and see what, what can be achieved with them. For sure. The general view that what we are doing with our body sensors is extracting views, very, potentially very, very different views of the world and even in our eyes, right? We can change the way, where we look and so on, but, but it's all like different views on a very complicated reality. And it's difficult to piece those views together. Very, very difficult. So having a combinatorial language to express those connections can be extremely convenient. Yeah, that, ma that makes me excited to push that direction more myself. Very that's, inspiring. That's, that's, that's the purpose of your, <laughs> the kind of thing I'm talking about, getting people excited, because I think there's, there's a lot to reap yet that's quite different in nature from what we've been pushing in the last few years in the Atlantic. And by the way, also quite different from the way people have been thinking about it in classical symbolic AI, rule-based symbolic AI, logical thing. I think there's interesting inspiration to have from that work that dates back from, you know, many decades and is very rich, but as is, it doesn't fit the neural net picture. It doesn't fit the sort of deep learning, rich learning capabilities that we've built. So the way I'm thinking about this is more, how can we make deep, deep nets, how to make neural nets represent that sort of combinatorial discrete structure that's inspired by how commission works and, 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 you know, reap all of the advantages, but not throw away the baby with the bathwater. Can you say a bit more about what are Gflow networks? So yeah, they're really motivated by how we can 
train this kind of attention policy that we've been talking about that selects and combines pieces of knowledge, concepts in order to find solutions to problems, to reason, to plan, everything that we see our higher consciousness do. So what are what they are, they're somewhere near the intersection of generative models, reinforcement learning, and variational methods. And the main thing that a GFONet learns is a generative policy that can construct a data structure. So think about a graph, but really think this graph is meant to represent a thought. Not not necessarily like a linear sequence of words, but more like think of the semantic parts, like how these words are related to each other through relations. So this is a data structure, which again, I like to think of as a graph. And and these these GFONets can construct, can generate such data structures sequentially, just like your thoughts go sequentially, you know, one little piece at a time builds up. And in that sense, you could think, oh, it's just an RL method because you learn a policy that it tries to achieve something. But the typical RL is trying to find a sequence of actions that maximizes a reward function. Whereas GPLONets are trying to sample these structures, these objects, with probability proportional to the reward you get. So there's a subtle difference here, and there are connections to existing work in RL. The, the connection to generative models is that, well, it's a generative model, right? You can, you can train these things to generate objects. You train a sampler and the connection to variational methods is, is a bit more technical, but you're not able to, to, let's say, directly learn a sampler. There's a, the loss function for, for G planets and many like probabilistic learning things like in variational methods are essentially intractable. So it's not like in normal supervised learning where you can say, oh, I have a loss function I can back propagate and, 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 and. so, so in, in the variational worlds, what we do is we, we, we have, you know, a proxy, something that we can differentiate and it's going to be a loss function that's going to allow us to train the machinery that does what we want, say, inference, you know, sampling things with the right probabilities. And by the way, this is very convenient to represent Bayesian posteriors. Or any kind of posterior, probabilistic posteriors, because when you want to sample from, say, P of, say, parameters given, it, it's, it's intractable to compute that, that probability, but it's easy to compute the joint of P of data and, 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 and data, P of parameters and data. So we can get an unnormalized reward, which is how well do you fit the data and the prior? And we can train a neural net to sample the parameters in proportion to that reward. So, so that's some, something we've started playing with and we have one paper already on. But yeah, so GFLONets are interesting because they also not only allow us to learn to sample objects, but also as a side effects of that, we're also learning what's called marginalization quantities, like a, the probability of some subset of, of variables where you ignore a bunch of others. In other words, you're summing over all these other things that again is an intractable thing. So you can, you can learn probabilities over any like subset of quantities that you care about. So a thought is usually a subset of all the things you could think about, about say an input or a plan. And in order to 
properly manipulate this kind of objects, you need a partial inference. What I mean by this is when you plan something, you don't think about all the details, right? You're throwing away a lot of information about the state. Or if, you, if, you, if you're doing caption generation, right? So you have an image and there are lots of things you could say about that image, but, but somehow you're going to focus on just a few aspects. And implicitly what you're doing when you do that is you modulize over all the other things you're not saying that are also true. And GFLAN is so good for doing this sort of thing. I like what you described is what, what does the training data look like to train a GFLAN net? Yeah. So normally when we train a neural net these days, like a large language model, if we need, if we want the language model to represent something very complicated, we need a lot of data to go with that. It's like basic burning theory. Yeah. But here we are in a slightly different situation. Because we are doing this separation of model, which is the reward function, like how things work. Are these concepts consistent, coherent with each other? I like to think of these as like an energy function. Um, so there's the model part, how things work in the world. And then there's the inference part. But, and, 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 you know, we would use the GFLONET for doing the inference part. And, and once you have inference, you can, you can help to learn the model as well like in BAEs, for example. But, but the thing is, if you think about how we train an inference machine, we don't need to train it with real data. It can query the model, like in model-based RL, right? So if you, if, you, if you want to train a policy, I mean, that's the way we train you know, Go-playing machine. The model is the thing that, that, we, that runs the simulation. You don't actually need to play with a human. You know the rules, so you can, you can just uh, generate as much data as you want. This is fake data. And, and so now the, the having a very large, like, you know, net of the kind we love these days could be useful, even if the data set is small, because what you're learning is how to convert the knowledge in the data set into a model and then convert that model into machine, a machine that can answer questions as inference. Probably that's real. Yeah, That's really so, interesting, but yeah, because the GFLU network is a learned sampler, exactly. But next to it, there is another learned, I think, learned entity. Yes, yes. which corresponds to reward or energy. Yeah, how do you get that? Well, it's interesting. There are several ways. We have a paper out where we use a a classical energy-based learning framework. So. If you want to do maximum likelihood tr learning of an energy function, so this is a long literature tradition, the hard part is to have a sampler. People typically use something like MCMC, but you can replace the MCMC by a GFLO net, essentially. So, so that's one approach, but there's an even more exciting approach where you don't even need to sample data at all. Because I don't think our brain samples images. You just need to sample the high-level stuff and potentially things like causal graph or you just, one way to think about it is you can sample parameters. And in that case, so th th these are two ways. There's a one way is the classical maximum likelihood energy-based learning approach. And another way that we've been working with is a Bayesian approach, which I think is more like what the brain does. When I'm reading the GFLOW, that papers and the, the write-up summarizing it. I'm really inspired. Partial also because it seems like there's still a lot of opportunity for future work. Is that right? Yeah. 
yeah, I think we're just like opening the door to all kinds of algorithms and architectures and ways of thinking about problems that is heavily inspired by everything we already know, but but is also kind of a, in a different category. And it seems like GFONS is one incarnation, but there's the the bigger principle of how you model something compactly could be separate from your inference system, which might be much more computationally heavy. Yeah. But because you model something separately more compactly, you need a lot less data. Yeah. That, that's the, that's the, the, the promise of, you know, that has been the promise of model-based RL since the beginning, right? True. But we can, we can apply this thinking not just to RL. This could be, you know, also in cases where there is no sequence of decisions. It's just there's knowledge and there's inference, questions you'd like to answer. And it fits very well what we know about high-level cognition. So if I tell you, oh, there's been a change in the traffic laws, now we have to all drive on the left, or, you know, that can happen if you just go to London. You, it's, it, it's instantaneous. So you can change your, your model part. You can change one little rule somewhere. What is not instantaneous is that now you need to fine tune your, your inference machine, but it's very fast and it can happen in your mind or maybe while you're dreaming, not even conscious of it. So, you know, it, it's very plausible that we're like, tr our inference machine trains itself on to be consistent with our knowledge. In fact, one way I like to think about GPLNS at a different, from a different angle is that it, it's all about Different pieces of knowledge, like the inference of the model in, in what I'm talking about, becoming consistent with each other. The whole training procedure for GFONETS is you have different parts of a system and they want to be consistent with each other. The whole learning procedure is self-consistency. And that you can see that Slater already exists, for example, in temporal difference learning, like Bellman equation. It's all about local temporal consistency of predictions of, about rewards, right? What you described reminds me of a couple other things that really uh, I find exciting connections, I guess, is one is in reinforcement learning, reward shaping plays a very big role in the speed of learning, right? And so it seems like if you can learn a very well-shaped compact model, whatever the counterpart would be outside of reinforcement learning, it could potentially allow the inference system to to be learned much faster, right? Even though it might be less compact, because in reinforcement, there's always that trade-off, very sparse reward, easy to specify, yeah. but now slow to learn. And so there's there's kind of a spectrum of what you're willing to do with the reward. And I'm curious what you think with the G flow nets of the part that is the counterpart of the reward, the energy function. Do you see a similar spectrum of, of possibilities? Yes. So... One of the things I'm thinking about these days, but really I don't feel like I have a mature understanding, is how we could use things like GFONETs to do planning at an abstract level and hierarchical enforcement learning. And even in an unsupervised way where you discover these high-level representations that have compositional structure like, like sentences, right? So think about your plans. They basically can be translated into sentences that have this compositional structure. And I... Yeah, I, I think that the, there's a, there's a way to make the composition structure in the model. Like we have these little energy functions that relate a few variables at a time can be matched with the way the, the sampler, the GFLONET does its work because the sampler 
the GFLNet goes like one little sentence at a time as well. And so it doesn't need to pay attention to everything, like all parts of the states either. So this is the partial state idea that I think we haven't been exploiting much yet in, in RL. Now, Yosha, with everyone we talked about so far, it's been about how can we get AI, fundamental AI advances that bring us closer to maybe human level capabilities, not just capabilities, but also learning speeds. But it turns out you also do a lot of work that's much more directly focused on having impact today in the world with what AI can already do today. What are some of the things that you've been really excited about recently? So it's also connected to GFlownets, actually. We can use GFlownets to do interesting experimental design. So what is experimental design? It's a, it's a meaning, how do I choose my actions, but in a scientific context? So let's say I'm interested actually these days in the problem of antimicrobial resistance. In other words, there's like a real threat for all of us that the next pandemic might wipe us out because bugs are developing resistance to the drugs that we have. In fact, there's already like a bunch of bacteria that for which there's no antibiotic that exists. Unfortunately, they're not too virulent, but they could mutate any day and, and, you know, become worse than, than what we got with COVID-19. It's true for bacteria and, you know, the same thing happened with viruses, fungus. Okay. So why do I bring this up? Because I think there is a huge transformative potential coming in the intersection of AI and biology, because there's been an incredible progress in technology, in biology to measure things and experiment at a large scale. So we can measure the expression of, of a cell, single cell, and, you know, measure thousands or, you know, even full genome, 20,000 quantities. We can take snapshots of this. We can make perturbations of the cell. So th these are the actions, the experiments. What should I try next as a biologist trying to understand how a cell reacts to COVID-19 or to some future bug? How do we figure that out? Well, the way that scientists do this is they do experiments. The traditional way of doing experiments is, you know, a, a biologist or a chemist thinks about it and says, oh, let's do this, let's do that. And these experiments have to be written down in text. And they have to come out of your conscious processing. And there's a bottleneck. But now we have these machines that can do millions of experiments in parallel. We need AI to help us deal with that. I mean, take advantage of that. And then measure millions of things. So like our human mind is, is, you know, is beautiful, but it's not suited to the current possibilities of science in many areas. So where does machine learning come in? Well, there's the modeling part. How do we build, for example, a causal model of the data we've observed that broken, that breaks down the, the knowledge into small pieces that are, that have compositional structure. That's essentially what it is. And then having that model, which by the way, should be Bayesian because we need to entertain multiple theories that explain the data. How do we decide what the next experiment of, you know, a million things should be? And we've been using GFLNets for both, but, but in particular, most of the papers have been on, on the experimental design part. And what happens is because they sample proportionally to the reward, if you sample many times, you will get, if there are many modes to the reward function, you will kind of cover the modes 
very naturally, right? So if I give you a sampler for a distribution and the distribution is highly multimodal and you can just sample IAD from it a thousand times, you'll get a thousand, say, candidate drugs that you could try that all seem good according to the reward function. So we've been exploring that thread and working with biologists and chemists to see how these tools could be, you know, used in, you know, real experiments. So we've been working with published data sets, but now the real game is, of course, is to use this in real new experiments, not the databases, the data sets that exist. So, so that's one example, but you could use the same general experimental loop structure where we can use machine learning for both modeling and experimental design. Oh, and we can use robotics to do the experiments faster. This is actually happening at the same time to scale up the experimental capabilities. So machine learning is all over the place. And people like Roguzik has quoted, you know, this term of self-driven labs. Right? So basically it's a full like scientific loop where everything is machine controlled. We're, I don't think we're there yet, but, but this is, this is where we, you know, we want to go. I mean, machine humans will be in the loop because the, there are lots of decisions to take at an, at an abstract level, but the more we can automate this process, the, the more power we can, we can get. Are there any specific diseases that you think of that this could impact? Or is this more of a, when something new surfaces that we've never done anything with before, we can as quickly as possible get on it and, and, and I guess, get rid of it. So I think the, the framework that I'm talking about, and I'm not the only one to talk about, right? I, I, my group is using GFONES, but people have been thinking about the, how machine learning could be used in science in this way for a while now. This could be applied to everything in, 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 in the like medicinal world, but also even more generally. But I'm more interested in the areas where industry is not going because it's not profitable, but the value to society or the cost of not doing anything to society is huge. So for your information, for example, the problem of antimicrobial resistance is projected to cost a hundred trillion US dollars by 2050 and to yield 10, you know, to, to cause 10 million deaths per year. That's more than COVID. And it's year after year. It's not just a two year thing. And, and the industry doesn't do much because there's a market failure, which you'd be long to explain. And, and there's, they don't have any incentives to really do the right innovations for this. So I think academics need to get into these things. And, 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 and the other like big problem, of course, that everybody has heard more about is climate change. And, and a lot of what we've been doing in my group are, is, is motivated by that as well. It turns out you can use the same techniques of, you know, scientific discovery, machine learning tools for discovering new materials that can be used, for example, for storage of energy for carbon capture or for better batteries. These are examples. But of course, you know, there, there's also a lot of more common commercial uses of having machine learning to help in material design. And by the way, this is an area where robotics is, is, is quite important because we don't have the paralyzation of biology as a, as a sort of cheap trick that, that we can use. That's really interesting. I mean, when, when you think about, I mean, these automated lives for materials, for cures effectively to diseases. I mean, it's, it's one gigantic machine run by an AI that is tr trying to solve, or it's not so much solve a specific problem, it's more like optimize against an objective, trying to 
do better than humans have been able to discover so far? Actually, it's not optimize. I've learned to try to remove that word from my vocabulary oh. and, and replace it by explore. So optimize is what like our usual RL does and our optimization methods, of course. But in many cases, what you want is not optimize, but sample all the good things. So there may be a lot of solutions to a problem. And sometimes you just need one solution that's optimized. Sometimes you really need to have as many of them as possible. And there are many reasons why you would like to have many of them. The, I mean, if you're Bayesian, this is going to create a safer decision-making process. If you think about drugs, it's because the way that we are constructing the reward function is imperfect. At the end of the day, there's going to be a clinical trial. And the, the, our reward function in the computer is not a, a, a good rendering of what's going on in a clinical trial. And we don't have enough data and, you know, from clinical trials to train a system. So we have these proxies. And so you want to make sure you have a diversity of solutions. If you had, you know, many solutions that are just small variation of each other and somehow, you know, they all die, they, they all don't work in the clinical trial because there is something fundamental that you're missing, then you're in trouble. But if you had covered all the ways, all the solutions and you still have some that survive the filter of reality, then this is this is quite important. Recently, there's been the Montreal Declaration for a Responsible Development of Artificial Intelligence. And you have a commentary written around that. Can you say a little bit about that? And wh why is it important? And, and why are you involved? Okay, so actually we did this in 2016 and it came out in 2017. So this is the time when people started to realize that AI would be deployed in society. You know, this is after the, the Google and Facebook and Microsoft and of this world started investing a lot in, in, in deep learning. And I'm really worried that we're not very wise in how we use our technology. And it's going to get worse because we're building technology that's more and more powerful. So the analogy I like is we've built these, so think about like nuclear power and nuclear weapons. Like we, we, we built these scientific understanding that can be transformed into tools. And those tools could be weapons or it could be used to control people. For example, you know, deep learning could be used to monitor people and, and track them in the streets and so on. And or <laughs> on the web and, and, and so on. But I don't think that we have the collective wisdom and social, social norms and, and laws and political and economic systems that can handle that kind of power. So it's like, you know, everybody can, can build a nuclear weapon. Well, what's going to happen? Some angry guy probably is going to be just saying, ah, press the button and kill a million other people, right? Or maybe a billion. So we can't afford that. Things are already pretty bad with climate and so on. But so we need, we need to think collectively about how we, you know, where do we draw the line between what we want to do with AI and what we don't want to do? And we need governments to get to regulate, even if it means slowing down. It's okay. The, the, the flip side is the destruction, wars. And what makes things hard is that, of course, different countries may have different ways of thinking about this and they 
ideally they should all agree on some 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 norms but we are so far from that i'm very concerned and so are you looking for a way to to rally leadership in different countries and when you think about leadership are you thinking scientific leadership are you thinking even all the way to the level of political leadership yeah one of the sort of small pet projects that i got into is can you use machine learning to help develop a more practical game theory strategy so that even in a world where there's not a central you know world government are there strategies that individual agents like countries can take for example, by making deals with other countries to make sure we don't, you know, lose altogether because of tragedy of the commons. And instead, the stealth interest of every other country will be to join that collective, you know, set of rules. Like <laughs> we need to regulate the climate and we need to regulate AI and we need to regulate biotechnology and all these like powerful and important things. And we need to agree on vaccines and all these things that we're not able to do properly. So I think that's an interesting question. And I don't know that we'll figure it out, but we launched a competition where, you know, different machine learning groups could compete to propose policies that could be trained on a simulator we're providing that allow, you know, individual countries to negotiate with other countries. And then we can see what happens with a economic and climate simulation with, with those policies after a few decades. That's really interesting. But when you say after a few decades, really, no, I mean, in, in a simulation, simulation, in a simulation, you can run, yeah, yes, you can run yes, much yes. faster. You, you can right. hopefully find That's out right. very right. soon. Yeah. 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 But of course it's not, it's not the real world. Right? This is a simulation, right? But, but I think these kinds of tools can help us even if they're just models. Well, this is all really inspiring you. It makes me curious. I mean, you're getting so much work done. Do you ever relax? And what do you do to unwind and relax? I walk. What do you do during Montreal winters? <laughs> Every morning I go out. I mean, there, like it fits really, the weather is really bad, but it's like once every month that I miss it. So, you know, in, in, in winter, we, you know, you could just dress up. And by the way, when you walk, and I, I, my walks actually involve climbing. I mean, climbing, yeah, by foot, not, not, not sports thing. And it's very, you warm up very quickly. Like, but the, the interesting thing is when you're walking, your brain works differently. Like, I think half of my ideas are coming from these walks or either like, well, it's either the walks or when I wake up. Hmm. So when I wake up, I, I, I try to avoid having an alarm and I don't, I don't, you know, get up right away. I leave like my, my mind wandering, eyes closed for at least half an hour. And the walks, I think they bring oxygen to the brain or something. And it's amazing. Like things that sounded like really complicated and I didn't know what to do. Suddenly solutions pop up. It's this giant yeah. machine that we have in our brain that, uh -huh. that comes up, that ensures potential solutions to problems. Just need to activate it. Yeah. We all have it. It's very easy. Just walk. I mean, I, I think you have to walk in a, like not in traffic or something. Like you need to be free. Your mind needs to be free, right? I love this. I mean, this is, this is great. I hope, I hope my own students, when they hear this, start, start 
taking more walks and uh, let their mind wander in the morning when they wake up. I'm also very curious about the kind of the trajectory that got you where you are today. Obviously, today you're ex- you know, top established person in AI, but I mean, you you started as a kid somewhere, right? That's right. And in you France, weren't there instantly, right? So, w- w- what are some of the things that really, when you look back, stand out in your mind about your path from being just a kid, probably just playing things, yeah. to where you're now? Well, as a kid, I was not very social, and you know, I was kind of the nerd type. Yeah, I I went to the library, and I. I, I spent a lot of time just thinking and not doing anything. And I was lucky enough that my parents helped to give me a lot of self-confidence. It's, it's unfortunate that not having enough self-confidence really kills a research career. I've seen really smart people that were just too inhibited, lacking confidence to take the time to like push your own ideas. So, so that's one aspect. I've been very lucky in my trajectory to meet people, you know, like, like Jan LeCun, Jeff Hinton, many others that were initially role models for me. And, and to quickly get into a scientific community that stimulated me a lot. And, and one thing that really, I think helped me is I'm, I'm the kind of person that keeps asking the why question. Like, I think we never do enough of it. So people will read a paper or like, I will tell something to my students and they will say, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they don't actually like understand it or understand at the level that they could like prove it to someone else. Or you need to be able to prove it to yourself. I don't mean just math. Like just, I think we take things for granted too easily as humans for, you know, probably inherited reasons. And as scientists, we need to question things all the time. So... If you use an algorithm, why does it work? What's the intuition? It's, it's asking those questions, I think, that, that feeds the, the thinking machine. One thing you said was you think you're very fortunate that your parents, how do you grow up with a lot of confidence, right? That they instilled that in you. Are there things that stand out, maybe specific memories or general principles you think they followed that kind of led to you building that confidence? They gave me a lot of freedom as well. And I tried to do the same thing with my own grad students, which means they don't always do the things I would like. But it works because when children or researchers have freedom, magic comes out. And, and also, I think my parents were a little bit, especially my father was, you know, he, he came from the time of the student revolutions of the 60s and uh, he wanted to question everything in society. So I think that's, that's a good base for a scientist. And, and I guess the self-confidence just comes with more like the mother thinking their child is so special. Well, she was right, I guess. <laughs> yeah, but I don't think she could anticipate what happened later. Yeah. Now, when we think a bit, a bit further along, let's say students, undergraduate students or early PhD students, any advice you might have for them? to build their careers? Yeah, I think many grad students in, in machine learning get their hands dirty, so that's that's good. This is important. Like you have to build your own intuitions. It's, it's connected to what I said about asking questions. And, and you have to read a lot, but not trust everything you reached because you know, other people's thoughts. Sometimes it's right, sometimes it's wrong. 
can be inspiration and collaborate. So there's there's such a a wrong meme in our society about how science works. Like you know, some genius is coming up with crazy ideas in their garage or their isolated mountain. Of course, that's not how it works. You and I know that, right? We we talk to people, we stimulate each other. And even though I was not a very social person initially, I I realized quickly as you know, early as a PhD student that it was through the discussions with others and and choosing who you're going to be working with is much more important than in what university or what lab, but like the people that you collaborate with, that they're going to stimulate you. They're going to question your ideas and they're going to come up with things that you didn't think about. So we need to cultivate that. And it, it, I always thought of my group as a kind of a family right, where we, there's enough trust that people will be feel free to, to share their crazy thoughts and, 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 and not feel like that they might say something stupid and, and feel bad about it. Well, that's really great advice. Well, Yoshua, it's such a pleasure chatting with you. Thanks so much for making the time. My pleasure. Thanks for all the great questions and the discussion. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation just as much as I did, please give us a thumbs up, leave a comment, put a rating. It'll help other people find the show. Thank you.